What is up, fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am Dan Pavalli coming at you with the first Hardwood Knox mailbag of the 22-23 regular season. I guess 2022-2003 regular season. I don't know why I abbreviate it when I, when I voice it. Uh, we have not had a mailbag in a while, a couple months, while I was going through those team-by-team look-aheads and doing a bunch of other stuff. So it's exciting to dive back into these mailbags. Before we get started, the usual reminder or plea, subscribe to us wherever you consume us. Hit that sub button on YouTube, like and comment as well to help the algorithm love us back. Um, help us just continue to grow this community on YouTube. We're over 2K subscribers, but I'd like to just exponentially grow from there. Subscribe to us also wherever you get podcasts. If you're not watching them or listening to them on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and let's cross subscribe. If you're listening to us on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, head over to YouTube, subscribe, comment, like videos. Anyway, if you're on YouTube, please, the links are in the, the YouTube description. Um, go ahead, subscribe to us. Follow all, all our socials. Those are in the podcast and YouTube descriptions as well. Um, Join our Discord. That's in the podcast and YouTube description too. Uh, great discussions already happening in there for the regular season. And if you're on Twitter, retweet our promos. Shout us out. A bunch of you have already done that. Um, I will retweet you or acknowledge you if it's not really a situation where I should be retweeting it. And then tell people about us. Word of mouth. I've gotten some DMs, as I mentioned last time, that people said they were... Um, they did recommend us or that they were that we were recommended to them. That's always really super cool to hear. Like it says in the little thing that plays over on YouTube, this is a very this is a seriously unserious NBA community, and I have a ton of fun, which is really the only reason why I do this. We're not, you know, getting rich. I, I'm lucky enough to cover the NBA full time, um, but this is more of a passion project than a necessity. So let's let's continue to build. That was way longer than I wanted. Let's dive into the mailbag. Uh, Grant Hughes might be joining us for, and I, why did I full name him? Grant, you're in trouble if you're listening to this, apparently. Grant, I think, is going to come on for the mailbag next week. Um, I kind of want to have two. I haven't really put out Twitter solicitations because we get a lot of Discord questions throughout the week, and uh, I'm going to give those priority. So join our Discord. You will get priority on the mailbag questions. There's a room. You can ask it. I bookmark it. Uh, try and get to it later. Um, but I will throw out Twitter solicitations, and so maybe there'll be two mailbags a week, and I don't know if I'll backstop them and publish them one right after the other, or maybe we'll do one on Tuesday, one on Friday. I don't necessarily have the cadence of these episodes down just yet. Um, I'm trying to figure out how much I want to go out per week with ep with episodes at least twice. I would ideally like to do four or five, but I have to be realistic with my actual job time commitments at Bleacher Report. So hopefully three to four might be the new cadence. Um, we'll figure it out, though. There hopefully will be at least one mailbag episode per week unless a bunch of shit happens. Now we can get to the actual mailbag, have a bunch of great questions as per usual we will start with we also had a few on youtube i'll start with the ones from from youtube chris curtis asked the future of the phoenix suns clearly revolves around devin booker's all nba ability which makes me wonder after the cp3 era do you think the suns will look to pair book with another traditional point guard or would they orient towards more of a point book team also what would you do in this scenario and would it differ from what you think the franchise would do um P.S. Here's a reminder that Hallie would have been the perfect successor to CP3 and would have solved a lot of our bench role woes. Love the show as always. Thank you, Chris. Uh, this was a fantastic question that I thought a lot about. Um, I would reorient the team around Devin Booker because I'm that high on him as a passer and his decision making when you look at what he's um, able to do after coming out of a ball screen or just the change of speed that he can give you with the ball in his hands, even the live dribble passing. They're not these super complicated flamboyant passes, but they are two players that would otherwise not be open 
or reads that if he wasn't on the court or reads that other players just wouldn't be making. And we've seen him get more of a share of those like true, I'll call them floor general reps uh, and not even always just natural. Okay. Devin Booker's the only floor general on the floor, but just even when CP three or Cameron Payne is there, we've seen him get more of that agency. And I just think he's really frigging good at it. Uh, So, and, and probably still underrated in that area. My, I would then reorient it around him just because I look at this team and say, okay, you kind of need more of just like that bigger wing guy and let's go out and let's get, you know, who are just whatever, a, a starry bigger wing. Mikael Bridges is not going to be the next Jalen Brown. It just doesn't seem like he has that uh, offensive gear to him. And I even talk about, you know, Jalen Brown being able to work out of the post, hit the fadeaways and the step backs. Mikael Bridges just goes through these lulls still where it feels like he doesn't want to take three pointers a ton. He should still even juice up that volume when he takes a quick fire three or makes a quick decision with the ball in his hands as a scorer. I get excited. I would, uh, you'll rejigger the team around that type of player. If you can go out and find that type of player. That being said, I don't know what the franchise does or will favor in large part, because this is the beauty of the situation. We get there. Devin Booker is so translatable or scalable as one of my favorite words. I get made fun of for that all the time um, on this podcast. Like you look at the way he moves off the ball. There's like a complicated simplicity to it, but he's comfortable doing it and effective doing it. So he can be on the ball. He can be off the ball. And when I say he can be off the ball, I don't even mean it in the sense of like, when you look at Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, for example, they can be on or off the ball. But like the way it works with the dynamic is it's your turn, my turn. And we saw it with Chris Paul and James Harden a little bit to compare it or a lot of it, the your turn, my turn stuff. Devin Booker and CP3 don't even exist like that because of the way that Devin Booker is able to flow without the ball in his hands through through the half court, he doesn't make it feel that way. It's just so organic and natural, and it just makes him so much more scalable, so much easier to drop into any offensive ecosystem, I would argue, and just be a star. And so if you need to reorient your team around him in the post-CP3 era, you just go out and you say, okay, whatever. You do we need? Could they get another? If you know, let's say a ball dominant guy like Shea Gilgis Alexander, who's not going to be just such a natural fit off the ball. If they needed to, I don't know what the defense would look like, even though Devin Booker has improved. Like they need to go out and get Trey Young if he ever, ever became available. That type of that type of player, you can do that, and it's not a problem. We're also seeing Trey Young do some more stuff off the ball in Atlanta, although I haven't watched a ton of the Hawks yet. They're one of my deficit teams at the moment. Them and the Bulls, if anyone cares about cares about that. Um, so he can he can play alongside whoever and i think what's probably even more important than that is he gives you flexibility in the sense of does your next star have to be better than devin booker and the answer is no because devin booker has probably been the best player on the suns for majority of the cp3 era if you want to argue that first season cp3 was maybe just more instrumental um and maybe he's been better in in crunch time uh, through a lot of the you know his first two seasons in phoenix that's fine. But I think Devin Booker gives you the flexibility to say, okay, we don't need that next move. DeAndre Ayton doesn't need to be a megastar, number one. Same with Mikael Bridges. But if we go out and trade for the next guy, he doesn't need to be better than Devin Booker. And that's huge because other teams that are would be left with one star or one building block should someone leave or even just currently. I mean, look at the Knicks with Jalen Brunson or Julius Randle. The next star that they get or develop has to be better than both of those guys. Otherwise, they're just not going to reach contention. 
Um, and so Devin Booker is sort of on the, the Cavs are a weird situation because if you want to call Garland and Mitchell equals, the context is also changed by the fact they have Jared Allen and then Evan Mobley might be the best of those four long-term. Um, but it's like having Luca in Dallas, except he's probably harder to fit in because you're not going to want to displace him from the ball. I guess you could try it. It's just something we've never seen from James Harden and those two get looped together because they're so, they have such a monopoly over their offenses. For Luca specifically, it's been a necessity for his entire career when you look at the players that they've they've put around him. So I think that's the beauty of Devin Booker. I'm not here to say that he's like all of a sudden the best player in the NBA, but when Monty Williams said this, and I actually, I need to throw this in the Discord or if people want to respond to this, maybe throw up a poll on YouTube or whatever. I should do a TikTok or IG short on it or YouTube short, post it all three. Monty Williams called Devin Booker the most complete player in the NBA right now. And I really thought about it. It wasn't, the egregious statement that you think it would be. It does sort of feel like it's the new way of saying, well, this guy's the best two-way player in the game. He's not the best player in the game. That's how they sort of, we sort of identified with Kawhi Leonard at points, or maybe it's how you identify with Giannis if you want to put Steph above him or something. But when you say complete, there's almost the the Steph curriness to it. When you look at his passing, when you look at him moving away from the ball, Steph has, for the most part, been a better defender throughout his career than I think people believe or not believe, but have, have painted him as. And now Devin Booker has reached that level. He's, I trust him fairly, um, you know, fairly strongly on the ball right now. And then all the things he does on offense, he can be the primary engine as your passer or playmaker moving without the balls. I keep coming back to score at every level, change his speed. You'd probably like to see him score at the rim more, um, but this is just someone who does all things. And he is, he, there's an understated completeness to his game. And if you're asking, well, who's more complete? I think, you know, is LeBron still up there? That that would certainly be one. The list does kind of, could Steph, Steph Curry still be on that list? Um, yeah, for sure. I think it also matters. Does complete just mean balanced to where the gap between their offense and defense isn't that far apart when you're looking at the the context of their entire game, because then that's not going to be Devin Booker, his offense or Steph Curry. Their offense is so light years ahead away from their, their defense. That might be more of the framing of the two-way player. When you're looking at complete, at complete, maybe it's just does the most amount of things on the court possible at both ends. If you want to say he's the most complete offensive player, again, I don't know if you, th that makes it tough because how is the answer? They're not Steph Curry. When you look at some of the screens that he's able to set to, I just think Devin Booker is, to make that statement is actually not absurd. It's not obscene. And it definitely doesn't seem as obscene as it would have, you know, certainly three or four years ago, but maybe even two years ago when you had questions about his defense. And so Devin Booker provides the Suns with the ultimate flexibilities. They move with their, their timeline, both alongside CP three and then after the CP three era. And I'm, I don't know if he needs to get more credit for that because we're still in, you know, the CP three, era sons but like that that matters because chris paul is in his age 37 season and like you know that clock is ticking and he started to hit his threes uh in in that win that they had on tuesday night um i think he's going to be better overall he's still been able to set up guys for passes uh, but it's just like he can't be this killer forever and there are probably you know going to be limitations to him defensively particularly when you get into the postseason and so if i'm if I am the Suns, I probably lean towards like, well, can we find someone who's just bigger, an actual wing, a secondary playmaker wing, um, or at least someone who could operate with the ball in their hands, since that is even one of their weaknesses now, looking at the supporting cast. And so, you know, a, a Jalen Brown would spring to mind there. 
Um, but it, it can be anyone. If you want it to be like a more, I don't want to use the word traditional, but let's say pure point guard, or if it's a smaller point guard, fine. If it's like a swingman or a bigger two guard or floor general type who needs to have the ball in his hands, that's fine too. If it's someone who's going to spend most of his time playing off Devin Booker, that's great as well. It could even be, I would argue it's not going to be a big man just because it gets really hard to upgrade from DeAndre Ayton at this point. Uh, I would say if, if, if I was looking at it as, okay, well, this is the one player that it can't be. I almost want to say like, well, then don't waste it on a four unless Giannis becomes available, like a pure four. Um, but like, even if you threw Pascal Siakam on this team with, with DeAndre Ayton too, like if there was a way avenue to get, they'd just be fucking like incredible. So um, Devin Booker, given the Suns' ultimate flexibility both now and later. That was a great question, question Chris. Thank you for it. I Glasgow on YouTube asked, what are the top three NBA mascots? What are the bottom three or logos? I did both uh, because why not? This is my personal opinion. I base it a lot. Let's do logos first. I base a lot on aesthetics, and I prefer logos when it comes to mascots, get-ups, if you want to call them, that are just louder and take more chances. My bottom three NBA logos at the moment, the Pistons, the Sixers, and the Nets, they all just feel really plain. And that just doesn't do it for me. Um, there And there are like alternative. I did it on the current logos that the teams have on their NBA.com websites. Like that that alternative black Houston Rockets logo is really freaking cool. Um, but I didn't pick it as the best logo just because that's not their primary logo. Uh, so those are my bottom three. And then my top three, I have um, OKC. That like theirs is just like the having the the lightning bolt in there and then the, the orange and the blue sort of clash, but they don't, they they mesh. I like that. The Hornets, I mean, kudos to just making a Hornet seem super intimidating. And then I, I love sort of the teal and purple that gets looped in there. And the other one was the magic. Like that's just, you know, like there when you look at them in the wizards, like where the wizards could have had like this wild warlock or something, like I feel like the magic made the most of the sorcery aspect. Um, with that sort of just like jet of of light coming off the ball or not it, like it feels like actual magic when you're when you're looking at it and so those were my three i didn't really have again the that black houston rockets logo would have made it um did i consider any other teams for the worst or the best though um i don't know those are pretty easy for me i think you can make a case that like i i like the way that they stretch the font out so the knicks is is fine with me um i do like the the blazers one that's the wizards one. I definitely considered for, for bottom. Um, that's without question. Um, but yeah, those would be my, my top three best and worst. I'm just, I thought about like, I don't know if I, I don't like the Cavs plain C one. Like when they had the sword going through it to go bottom three, the Lakers one, isn't very creative of just the, the yellow ball with the purple lettering. And so maybe I should be willing to bounce that for, I don't know, Brooklyn's or, or Philadelphia's because at least they have that, like that little sparkle to it. Um, but yeah, my top three, let's do my bottom three mask. No, uh, bottom three mask, like I don't Ben the bison. And I mean, or like bumble the bison, I guess that's too much of a, a Hornets thing there. Um, brick the bison would probably just be a really terrible one but that'd be, that'd be like super funny um just like, like let's at least get some like alliteration with the name and then it's also just i don't I'm not from oklahoma city but like are you passionate are they passionate about bison there if the young, if any of the uncontested folks are listening to that feel free to to answer that for me and then finally slams in the lion with the kings i kind of like the name um but there was more ways that you could have gone it didn't have to be an actual king um, 
but like, so I understand what they're going for, but there are more ways that you could have gone where it's like an actual king or just anything that really sort of had the crown. I know that the, the lion is part of their low, like some of their logo stuff too. I get that. But the actual lion face, it kind of looks like if retired age Simba from the Lion King moved to Florida and spent too much time out in the sun, and just got like this leathery droopy skin look. I, I, it's just, I don't know. It's, it, it doesn't do it for me. So those are my bottom three Kings Celtics and the thunder. Um, I probably like the thunder one, the best out of those three though. I, the aesthetic anyway, uh, the name without question is, uh, is the King slams and the lion. The, the Celtics missed the mark on both. I get lucky. The leprechaun just like an easy low hanging fruit there, but like, let's make the actual um, lucky logo better. Um, something that Kyrie Irving won't want to stomp on, you know, like let's let's respect the sanctity of that mascot. My my top three mascots. This was tough, so I'm gonna give you my tough cuts first. G Wiz for the Wizards. I actually like that mascot as opposed to not really loving Washington's logo. Rocky the Mountain Lion for the Nuggets. Just a great entertainer in my opinion, and he looks he looks fun too. He's like just this friendly uh, lion, mountain lion. Benny the Bull is iconic, and so maybe I'm just overexposed. And then the Raptor does some you know pretty daring stuff. Maybe I'm just like whimsically dreaming of. Uh, I think that was the the no fans season where he's getting in trouble. I don't think it was the bubble. What is time anymore? Uh, but my actual top three, the Coyote for the Spurs. That's just a no brainer for me. Um, that dude knows how to uh, knows how to. Well, I shouldn't say that dude, but uh, that mascot knows really how to entertain. And I love the the actual costume. Um, this one might surprise some people, but Chuck the Condor. It's just so sort of for the Clippers. It's so random. And I'm not Zach Lowe. I don't know the stories behind all these mascots. Uh, but he like looks like a pelican. Like he could easily like maybe the pelican should have him as the mascot. Uh, but he just looks like cool, border on scary sometimes. And then the easiest one for me is stuff the magic dragon. And I love that he got involved in the Aaron Gordon dunk competition. So that was a big one. And that was super cool. But he just like stuff looks like. It, it's like this mythical acid trip incarnate in bodily form. And I love it. So there's my top mascots, no scientific uh, way to choose them. I will say the actual worst mascots are, and I think these are the teams, if I'm correct, I don't think I'm missing anyone, but the nets, the warriors, the Knicks and the Lakers are all cowards for not having a mascot. Glad S when you're watching bad slash young teams and players, what do you look for in figuring out if a player is actually good or just has the opportunity to put up numbers? Is it just an efficiency thing? Is it a self-creation thing, a decision-making? The real answer is probably a mix of everything, but is there anything specific that helps you um, or that you look for? So yes, Glad's right. It's a mix of everything that they just listed. I will say um, two of the things I watch for the most uh, is the one is the context of their role. And it's just like, with Cade Cunningham last year and even this year, just being saddled with so much responsibility as a rookie within the confines um, of terrible floor spacing. And the same thing with Shea Gilgis Alexander for a lot of his time in Oklahoma city. And so if you're tasked with a lot of self-creation or navigating these tight spaces with the ball in your hands and not having the same passing avenues open to you, um, I'm going to be able to separate any, let's say turnovers amid bad spacing like Cade had last year when I'm looking at your vision and you're able to see these passes, um, these open, these would be open players technically before they develop, or you're still threading these ridiculously difficult angles or getting through tight crevices. Um, and then the other one for me 
it's it's not necessarily an efficiency thing, but it's also just like a I value self-creation. And so when you're evaluating young players, the self-creation and then the decision making that goes into it. The passing can fall under that as well, for sure. Um, but I, I think I go back to Shea here because he's been the big one. It's not like a like Luca, this is how the offense is designed. The Mavs are gonna be top 10 offense when he's on the court, yada yada yada, ball's always in his hands. But it's just like is there a variability to how they can play with the ball in their hands? Maybe that's sort of what I mean. Like Luca has that variability and you knew it to finish at every level to have finesse, but also force um, to be able to back down players if he needs to, or just body through contact to be able to hit step backs or dribble into pull up jumpers or have floaters or, or hit these ridiculous, ridiculously tough finishes. And if you're able to do that when you're, you're younger, I actually view that it's not even just an efficiency thing. If, if you're efficient while you're doing it on a bad team with, you know, less than less than ideal supporting cast. Uh, hell yeah. Like Shea during the first year without CP three in Oklahoma city, for instance, would be a good example there. Uh, just going to keep throwing it back to Shea here, but I still look at Cade Cunningham and I see the feel for the game and the form on his pull-up jumper this season. Uh, and I just like it. And so that would be what I watch for. It's, I will say it's definitely easier to do, with the should be higher end options or guys who are a focal point. And so the other thing I would look for when you're sort of looking at supporting cast players is can they fit seamlessly into a, a larger offensive ecosystem, despite one, their team's perfections and then maybe their own flaws. And I would point to Jeremy. Sowen early on with the Spurs has not been great a lot of the time, but the things he's already doing defensively, um, the way that he can still just be a ball mover. Some of the finishes that he's already had, he hit a three against the Timberwolves on Wednesday, but because everyone hits threes on, the, on the, the Timberwolves these days, but like that is the stuff that I'm looking for in the role players. And then it's also, and I'll use, I'll stick with the Spurs here, a Devin Vassell type where it's, Oh, you know what he can do. Look at him, move off the ball. Look at the set three, look at the work he puts in on defense. But is there more, more to plumb there? Like what happens when they give him a little bit more responsibility and try to scale up? And that's what you get to see a lot on these teams that are rebuilding or, or being purposely bad. Uh, and we've seen Devin Vassell is just a great example there where they threw more ball screens last season. They've done it more this year. Um, uh, I, I think he's, is he, yeah, they did it more to start the season this year. I think he got injured and not, I did not pay attention to the, um, the Spurs over the past two days, to be honest. Well, actually, that's not true because I went back and watched their Timberwolves game. Uh, yeah, Devin Vassell dealing with the... He did not play Wednesday. He was dealing with the knee injury. That is correct. So, But like when you look at the games that he's played in, uh, and I, I was watching his possessions for something that I was writing uh, the other day, he's more comfortable doing this pick-and-roll stuff. And so I, I fully believe, no, that he's not going to turn into just like a you know, Chris Paul-level manipulator when he's coming out of the pick-and-roller, or even a Devin Booker, since they're more like-sized than he and CP3 would be. But can you look at a player scaling up like that um, when it's, when it's again, a non-star? Keldon Johnson would be a good example, something to monitor there. I still don't have a great feel for like how he fits into like sort of that, oh, let's give him more on-ball stuff. There's definitely more directionality to what he's doing on the ball this season. But that's sort of what I, for the, especially the first, like, definitely the first two seasons of a player's career. And then if they're trying out a different role where we're seeing Vassell graduate to something now, uh, then, you know, moving beyond three and, and four years. And so I do throw efficiency out of the window a lot when I'm uh, watching those players on bad teams. And do you get burned by a Michael Carter Williams every now and again? For sure. Um, but I do think that when you go back, it is easier to identify players that might be able to 
impact winning, even when they're on a bad team. And with Michael Carter Williams, he was just surrounded by such an extreme example. And we probably just should have seen it because he kept coming up in all these just terrible, historically bad efficiency returns, but you get wowed by the counting stats. And it's just like, I still do. I'll cite points per game, but like, I can't remember the last time like that. I I've just leaned on the counting stats to dictate, Oh, is this player a, a good passer necessarily? Like you can dig deeper now and to see like, well, okay, well like how, how many of his passes are actually leading to shots and what percentage of those shots are players making, or are they even leading to, to free throws? So you go into things like that. But I do think aesthetically when they're that early in their career, if it's the first two seasons or the first three or four, or even I guess if it's anytime someone's graduating to a role, how does their um, feel in, in that role? How does it look? And even if you're not some X's and O's savant, which I am not, you can still get a good sense of a player like that. And I think identify that they're going to be useful. And it's like I said, it, I think it's easier to detect in some of the, higher end guys who are going to get a lot of control over the offense specifically, but like even a Dyson Daniels in new Orleans this season or a Trey Murphy coming on last year, like these complimentary players, if you just watch and see how they fit in, even despite their shortcomings, looking at Dyson Daniels, you know, as someone who does have his offensive limitations right now from the perimeter, but you look at what he's able to do when he's getting up and down the floor, or if he um, keeps the ball moving on offense. And so, or being able to put the ball on the deck like that, like that's a big one. I'm not necessarily fumble it all the time. Those are just, I guess that's a, a zillion things I watch for, but I do think there's a difference on what you probably need to watch for with if someone's going to be a primary or a secondary, just like engine for an offense, you're, you're watching for different things as opposed to uh, a role player or more of a, a complimentary mentory player. Um, and so, yeah, that's just what I watch for. I think that's how you find enjoyment in, bad teams. It's like Jalen green last year, even Jalen green to start this year um, in the couple games that I've watched, like being able, yeah, there are limitations to his game. And I'm, I kind of thought that maybe he could be a primary passer. And now we're only a few games into the season. I'm like, eh, I don't see it anymore. He's just telegraphing too many things and feels too sloppy, willing passer, but doesn't look like he's going to be a great one. I can't say that though, when he's just a season and change in his career, but look at the ridiculously tough shots that he has needed to hit just because of, yeah, there's talent around him, but it's not really proven talent right now and so like, you can look at a player and be like well that guy sort of has it and then a Tyrese Maxey last year where it's oh look at how many different roles he thrived in he steps up from rookie to sophomore is easily Philly's second most critical player last year James Harden comes along and he just becomes this blindingly fast straight line driver who's banging in catch and shoot threes at 45 plus percent and so th- the being able to adapt is also a big one for me too we all know whoever anyone who listens to the podcast anyway that I value scalability Great question, Glad. You're always making me think. Uh, JT Alexander, we have two questions here from JT Alexander and then from Glad that that um, focus on the Lakers and Russ. So I'll loop them together. JT Alexander asks, what do the Lakers do to be competitive? Do they take the hit on their first round picks to get Russ off and get a couple decent role players? Or is there just no hope for the current iteration of this team? Uh, I'll answer this one first because I do think Glad's is a little different. I, at this point, I wrote that I would have just moved him. And I think that the default is you just move him. Like, what is the best offer you could get return for those two first round picks right now? Or is there a way to get one of those deals while only giving up one guaranteed first? Like, is it one first and a swap? A 27 first and then the 2028 swap? Or you can even do a 26 swap as well. Uh, And I would just do it because LeBron's in his age 38 season. And you're just, even if you're not a contender, you are obligated to treat yourself like one. That being said, 
I don't think moving Russell Westbrook solves the Lakers issues. They're not going to get enough quality talent back. Uh, if they're waiting this out and for some reason, Kyrie Irving becomes available again in Brooklyn, they're able to pull out, pull off that deal. I mean, maybe, um, and, but you do that. I don't know if it makes them contenders. They're still really shallow there. Barring something like that, though, the fact that you didn't do anything to address this over the offseason after knowing it didn't work going through last year, after you should have already known it didn't work before you even made the initial trade, there might just be a take your plan or worse exit medicine at this point. Why double down and mortgage your future for a team that doesn't even have an immediate future? I mean, Anthony Davis is battling back stuff and looks at Russell Westbrook's dealing with hamstring stuff. Now he doesn't play against the nuggets. The Lakers don't look that much better without him anyway. Uh, and so he, I I'm like, it's not to say that you should ride it out with this group. If there is a trade that comes along where it costs you one first round pick in 2027, or it doesn't cost you a first round pick because maybe there's a team that just so values getting off longer term money and you don't care about your cap space. As long as you get to keep your first round picks, then yeah, do that trade. At this point, I wouldn't give up first. Like if it's again, if it's one for knowing the rumor deals that are out there. So I'm basing this or could be out there. If it costs you one and a swap, yeah, maybe I'm reevaluating the Buddy Heald Miles Turner situation. Maybe I'm reevaluating what the Spurs would be doing if it's a Josh Richardson and then you know Jakob Pertle. I think that's probably for them to get only one first round pick for Jakob Pertle and Josh Richardson while taking on Russ's Russ is fairly light as well. But if you can do something like that, then do it. Otherwise, I, I just I don't see the pathway to this year's Lakers being more than a first round exit almost by way of the play-in. I, I just don't even see a path to them getting into the, the top six this year. And so reset over the summer, have your first round picks. Russ comes off the books. You will have cap space. Yeah. LeBron's going into his age 39 season, but he's still pretty damn good. Maybe you just, you know, cross your fingers and hope for the best there. Um, and then also hope that either, you know, I guess you you know you have a first-round pick this year, but you just hope that the Pelicans are worse than expected so that even when they exercise their swap, you're still getting a lotto pick or something. But the Pelicans aren't going to be worse than expected. That's been pretty clear. Um, glad on this same subject, as with all the Russell Westbrook trade scenarios being brought up, is there a team he gets traded to where he actually ends up playing minutes for the rest of the year? For the most part, only the only reason teams are trading with the Lakers is to get their picks and move off big contracts, gain Westbrook's expiring none for Westbrook as a player. The popular trade ideas with Indiana and San Antonio both have young backcourts and players. They want to give minutes to, and I presume would wave or send him home. Maybe my enemy would play him, but I really don't see that happening. Charlotte, if they send Rozier and Hayward, since they would be tanking if they decide to do that. But also if a tanking team decides to trade for him and play him, would he actually end up playing well enough that for the team to win a few extra games um, that they shouldn't? I don't think teams are going to risk it, especially at the end of the year. For the most part, it seems that wherever he goes, we won't be seeing him playing till next season, if that. So I, I would disagree with the latter. If he, I think he would get, if, if a team is going to, well, I shouldn't say that. If in all likelihood, they're like, they'll broker a buyout or they'll waive him if it's late enough into the year post trade deadline. Like, if it's at the trade deadline, then yeah, like you could just, you know, you're not getting off that money anyway. If it's before, maybe you get into the game of, well, we're holding on to his contract to see if we can move it. So he's not going to play for us. But I would guess that he hits the, the waiver wire and then signs with a team that I don't know that gives him a big role, but that's just desperate for point guard help. Uh, in terms of a team that I could see trading for him and actually using him, it would be Charlotte for me just for the Jordan brand connection. And if you're giving up Rozier and Hayward, when's LaMelo coming back from that sprained ankle? And you're still, I know Dennis Smith Jr. is kind of balling out, but does Russ put bodies in seats? Like how much does Michael Jordan care about that? Um, and are they not doing it to tank 
or further their tank so much as we want the longer term money of Hayward and Rozier off our books. I don't think Rozier, when you look at the new cap climate, that's just not a big deal. But if you're getting Lakers picks and then it's also, well, we haven't really damaged our chase for the 10 seed all that much. And we can play Russ. We can surround him with, uh, well, not a bunch of shooting, but three shooters on the court, even without Rozier and Hayward. Although I guess not if Ubre's there, you do have Cody Martin still. Um, but just because of the Jordan brand connection, the other one I did see is Utah just because depending on who they're moving out in that deal, like if they're giving up Conley and Clarkson, do they want a veteran to steer things? You don't want to play with Colin Sexton, but if it's Danny Ainge that's before the trade deadline, this would be my point. Maybe Russ doesn't report to the Jazz. That's always on the table. But if you're Danny Ainge that's before the trade deadline, you're, you, you're not in the business of, well, I'm going to give up this expiring contract now. I'm going to see if anything materialized leading into the trade deadline. And if as long as Russ is not you know, submarining the mood, the vibe of your team, you can play him and not damage your rebuild in the sense that Utah specifically, you're not dealing with guys who need to get these touches. Like if he's eating in to Sexton and Larry Markkinen's usage, I would argue those two guys probably aren't going to be on the jazz in two to three years. That would just be my guess, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, Lowry marketing looks good enough to headline a dynasty right now, but you can stagger minutes, play Russ in a bit role. Maybe the idea is, Oh, if we show that he can play, especially within Utah's offense, the way they're able to spread the floor with a bunch of people with, with a bunch of the players that are there right now, do you just play him and see if another trade materializes? If it's after the deadline? No, absolutely not. He's not reporting to Utah. He's not reporting to Indiana. So in all likelihood, whichever team he gets traded to is doing so with the intention of just recouping assets and then just, getting him, you know, paying him to essentially stay home or, or go away. And then at that point though, as long as like, I do expect Russ, if he's traded to play again this season. So I will say that maybe it just takes longer because it happens before the trade deadline. And then he doesn't want to waive him or broker a buyout. They want to see if there's other moves to be made um, using Indy, but it, it could hold true for the Spurs as well. Um, would the Spurs even play him? Probably not just because you want Devin Vassell, Kellen Johnson, Josh Primo, to get those on ball reps. Um, but like maybe just because they're so barren of an offensive organizer, proven offensive organizer right now. And would, would Russ want to play for pop and would pop, you could see Russ giving pop a headache, but would pop sort of just like the challenge and appreciate having sort of the older head there, especially if, you know, two or three of the players going out in any Westbrook deal or Pirtle Richardson and Doug McDermott, you're just bankrupting yourself of veterans who uh, are not named Gorgie Jang at this point. So yeah, that would just be my stance there. Uh, there, I, I, there aren't teams that I are going to acquire him with the intention of playing him, but I could see a scenario in which he gets traded to a team that actually winds up playing him. But I do expect him to play again this season. If, and when the Lakers do move him, that's going to do it for part one of this mailbag. It ended up being so long. I'm going to put it into two podcasts. That will probably be the goal per week is two mailbags. Maybe they'll be separate. Maybe they won't. We'll have to have to see. Uh, please remember to rate review and subscribe to us. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple, that goes a long way. Retweet our promos. If you're on Twitter, shout us out. I will engage once I see it. Uh, word of mouth helps as well. Recommend us to people if you think they would enjoy this podcast because they hate um, to hear good basketball things and want to hear some really bad ones. And so sub on YouTube. If you made it this far, you haven't liked or been in the comment section or, you know, again, sub. I don't even know what you're doing here. Take that extra five-second step uh, to continue growing this community. Until next time, I leave you with a shout-out to the one, the only, my forever, my heartbeat, Franklin Aquino.